everyone loved it but me. My name is Lisa Hedger and I am your host. I'm a freelance writer, editor, and journalist in Central Ohio. This is the podcast where we offer analysis about beloved books. And oftentimes that analysis is a little bit different than than what you have been hearing about these beloved books. Here in the summer of 2022, I've been sharing a number of smaller episodes called Book Bits, which include a wide range of bookish topics. Today, I'm going to share my experience at the Maine New York Public Library. This is the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building. This library is a phenomenal and I visited it for the first time last week, and I'm going, it is just a treasure trove of amazing literature items. And then I am going to do a quick update. We've been talking the last few weeks about the this publisher trial that's happening with the government. Going to give a quick update on that, catch everyone up. The library is just so fascinating. So I want to share a little bit about this library visit. And now on to the show. All right, everyone, I want to share my visit, a little bit about my visit of the Stephen A. Schwartzman building in New York, in the New York Public Library. I used to go to New York for business pretty regularly, about once every couple months from around 2005 to about 2010, 2011, I guess the early odds, as, as people say. And during that time, I would try to soak in as much of the New York culture as I could with meetings and, and things like that. I try to leave for lunch and just walk around, go to a cool restaurant, get those day of tickets, you know, a single ticket to a Broadway show, go on the subway, go to Little Italy, like walk around the neighborhoods, that, that kind of thing. But the one thing that I never got to do during that time was go to the public library. And I would imagine it's just maybe the hours or what have you. I'm not exactly sure why, but this last visit, we did kind of a whirlwind visit with my husband and my 12-year-old, and we were doing Broadway shows, Mets game, you know, the whole thing in a, in a very quick eking out the final days of, of summer, if you will, with our kids starting school actually this week in central Ohio. Actually, on the day that you're going to listen to this, on Wednesday is our first day of school, believe it or not. So we were staying close to Broadway, right within literally a couple blocks of the library. And I said, I have got to go see the library. So if you haven't been, you can certainly Google this, but the first thing that you'll see. So this building, I'm going to just tell you a couple of things about it. It, Guys, it is just... It is so phenomenal. It is so phenomenal. So I suggest that next time you go to New York, carve out a couple of hours to visit this library. It is worth it. It was first opened to the public at 9 a.m. on May 24th, 19. 
2011, and apparently more than 50,000 people visited the library. It was open for 13 hours. When you first walk in, I'm sorry, not like when you first start walking up to it, I'll talk about walking in in a minute, but when you're first walking up to it, you're going to see those cool, iconic lions. It's been called, and I'll include a link to this as well, New York's most lovable public sculpture. The lions have witnessed countless parades and been adorned with holly wreaths during the winter holidays and magnificent floral wreaths in springtime. And they've also been topped with hats, graduation caps, Mets, Yankees caps, and you name it, on and on and on. And every one of us tours always have to have our pictures taken by it. You know I did. And it's just so cool. Their nicknames, so I was looking this up. There's several stories about these lovable lions. Their nicknames have changed over the decades. Apparently, they were first called Leo Astor and Leo Lennox after the New York Public Library founders, John Jacob Astor and James Lennox. Later, they were known as Lady Astor and Lord Lennox, even though they are both male lions. Then, in the 1930s, Mayor... Fiorello, uh, sorry, I think I mispronounced that one, LaGuardia, we know LaGuardia, I know that name's right, named them Patience and Fortitude for the qualities he felt New Yorkers would need to survive the economic depression. And guess what? Those two names have stood the test of time. Patience guards the south side of the library steps and Fortitude sits unwaverly to the north. Those are basically kind of the mascots of the library. They are trademarked by the library represented in its logo and featured at major occasions. So I include links. You can also Google it as well. But those two lions are pretty iconic and really cool. All right. When you first walk into the library, you know, this is very similar to to any really popular place you're going to go in New York or really anywhere in the world in 2022. Got to go through a little security. They're going to check your bag, that kind of thing. Also, keep in mind, you know, we were there in the summer. This was August. It's going to be a little warmer, certainly in 1911 what they were planning for with air conditioning, things like that, right? It's it's different now. So there's certain parts where, you know, it's going to be a challenge to, to regulate the temperature. But then there's other areas that were just so lovely in terms of, of, of the actual temperature. So certainly, I guess, it's probably one of those situations where, you know, you might want to be in a tank top in the summer and probably bring along a a, a cardigan or, or something like that uh, as well in case it gets a little cooler in, in a different room. You walk in and you can immediately start looking around. Now, just be prepared that if you are interested in doing extensive research, so if you're planning to research particular things you do need to go online and you need to get permission there's things that you need to do to get permission to go into certain research rooms so there are a lot of research rooms that are available by appointment only so if you've got a big project you're planning you want to spend several hours you're looking into certain things you do need to plan ahead now if you're like me and you just want to wander around a cool 
library and walk up and down the steps and see some different things. And I did, I'll be 100% candid, I did not have any research projects in mind. I just wanted to kind of soak it all in and, and just see what I could see. So, you know, certainly there were certain rooms I was not able to go into because I had not gone through the permission process. And that was fine. I, I, again, I didn't have any research to do, so it worked out fine for me. Now, when we were there, it was the, this particular exhibit is called the Intersex. So I called it kind of the insect exhibit, I guess, but the intersex where arthropods and homo sapiens meet. So this was a particular exhibition, intersex, that was on display until August 13th, 2022. So we actually just got there right before this exhibit ended. And I, again, I will include some links in the show notes. This exhibit, it was, if you can imagine just a graphic novel that is, you know, 10 feet tall, let's say, like just the span of the walls and you're walking around and you're reading things. That is how this was set up. It was so cool. I loved it, right? So there's all these little facts and quirky things in this exhibit. Now, I will tell you, it's really interesting. I always feel how we respond to things is based on our expectations. So of this exhibit, I think when my 12-year-old saw something about insects, he thought, oh my goodness, we're going to see insects. That's not what is happening here. These are, it's a really like a graphic novel perspective on the walls. I thought it was so cool. Absolutely loved it. And just the whole way that it was written was just written in, in that kind of, you know, it was giving you a lot of information. Like, for instance, it'll say, it is estimated that there are 10 quintillion insects on Earth. And then all of the walls are filled with all of the blurbs that you read in a graphic novel. A lot of you think of us as just a once every 17 year invasion, but historically what we've invaded most is your imagination. And these are the insects, the cicadas talking to us and they go through and it's a whole, it goes through the whole story talking and, and giving out like it, it just in a really conversational graphic novel tone with also providing some some information and by the midway through once my 12 year old understood oh okay it's not real insects it's like a graphic novel then he deemed that it was indeed cool but I think that if you are envisioning seeing all the insects and, and perhaps see the graphic novel it might be a little bit different there there are pictures of you know these giant insects all around libraries and they took some imagery of you know ants giant life-size ants in the front of the New York Public Library right by the lions it, it was worth a visit. So I, it was a, it was a treat for me to see because I thought it was very, very creative and it's, it was so cool. I really, really liked 
seeing it. Okay, so now I want to share with you, like I said, I really enjoyed that exhibit, which is a limited time exhibit, but there's a new permanent exhibit that opened at this library, the main library, just about a year ago. It first opened in September 2021, and it's called Treasures. That is the name of the exhibit. And here's kind of how it works. So there's free admission. What happens is it's kind of like when you first walk in, if you keep going toward the end, you, you will see it. There's a couple of kiosks. So you're going to have to essentially you know, type in some information, you'll give them your email and your cell phone number. And what they will do is they're going to send the tickets to your phone so that you can download it. Certainly, it's basically called timed tickets available. Now, it's like anything as I would understand, you know, there's certain numbers of, of people and, and things like that that are allowed to to get into this exhibit. And as I was looking at this, this is basically for more than 125 years, the New York Public Library has collected, preserved, and made accessible the world's knowledge with more than 56 million items that tell incredible stories and inspire millions each year. This exhibit, the Polensky ex Exhibition of the New York Public Library's Treasures, this exhibition builds on our 125-year legacy by making some of our most significant collections freely available to everyone so that visitors are empowered to discover, learn, and create new knowledge both today and in the years ahead. Okay, I, I was blown away by this. You guys, I was so impressed. So what I've done when I actually went to the library, I wasn't thinking that I was going to talk about it on the podcast. I actually didn't. I probably would have taken more diligent notes and things like that. I did take some pictures because I was so blown away and I will share these pictures, of course, on social media. But, okay, I just adjusted the mic for a second because I realized it was facing away from me. So you might be able to hear me a little better now. <laughs> uh, for instance, we have spiritual milk for Boston babies. This is spiritual milk for Boston babies is the first children's book printed in British North America. It was the work of John Cotton. Okay, this is the New York Public Library holds the only known copy of this initial American edition. So this section, this display is just filled with things like this that blew my mind every time I looked. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's Malcolm X's satchel that you see there. It's right there. This exhibition is just just filled. It's just such a, a treasure trove. I think I used that phrase already, but it's just incredible. There are certain things that people have written in, you know, in play, Broadway plays, you name it. Like there's so many cool, cool things here. Um, you know, I'm looking at one of the other pictures I took, children's literature first emerged as a distinct genre during the 17th and 18th century. So there's a whole section, of course, on children's literature, and then you kind of delve into, it looks like I took some more pictures of that. Um, we have, the, this I thought was really significant. 
Okay, you have Charles Dickens Writing Desk that is in this library. Now, you can't touch it or anything like that. Of course, it's, you know, it's encased so that there's no greasy fingers or anything like that. But I thought that was so cool. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys. Charles Dickens Desk Writing Slope Lamp Desk Calendar and Chair. Oh my goodness. I was so excited when I saw that. And okay, there was a picture of me that, that I just took <laughs> that was right next to it. Okay, now we have Charlotte Bronte's writing desk. This was wood. It was described as wood, mother of pearl, metal, and velvet. The time that it was made was before 1855. The description is this small. And this is a really, really small writing desk. Both my husband and I looked at it and said, oh my goodness, how would you write on this? So the Charles Dickens one I'm describing is one you sit on. This is completely different. It's described as a portable box with compartments for paper, ink, pens, spare nibs, and can be easily locked and transported for travel. Best known for her 1847 novel, Jane Eyre, Bronte began writing as a young girl. So this is the kind of really, really cool stuff that, that we have in this exhibition, in, the, in this exhibit that is free. There is no cost to enter this. And I thought it was as rich and just wonderful as a museum that, that you know, I've paid for many a museum visit, a, a lot more, and perhaps not seen as, as many cool things. And then I'm going, I'm looking through some of my pictures. I mean, and then, I mean, at one point there's, there's even a letter from, from George Washington and just the list just goes on and on and on. So I, as I said, if it was literally like every 10 seconds, my son, my husband, or one of us would be like, look at this, look at this. So next trip you have to New York, next time you go, family, business, whatever, see if you can squeeze in an hour and check out this library. It is well worth it. It's incredible. The architecture, it is so, so cool. So it is, it is well worth it. Certainly if you're interested in seeing more of a book collection, I think you'd want to check out, like I said, other libraries. This one is just filled with so many amazing historic artifacts. And also I promised I would give a quick, quick update on this publishing trial that I have been talking about the last few weeks. Quick reminder, here in early August 2022, the U.S. government has sued Penguin Random House because almost two years ago in the fall of 2020, Penguin Random House announced it was spending almost $2.2 billion, that's with the B, to purchase competitors Simon and Schuster. So we have five main publishers and the U.S. government has said, hey, wait just a minute, you guys, this is this deal will mean, you know, it's an antitrust issue. It's going to mean fewer authors. They're going to get paid less. There are some problems with this. I've highlighted this a bit. Stephen King has come out as a witness for the government. He described himself as a freelance writer, which 
tickled me, but is his way of saying, hey, I'm, I started out just like everyone else. So every day there, there have been new witnesses. We're seeing all sorts of people talk about this. The New Yorker, I'm going to include a link to their story in the show notes because they're kind of are, they're coming at it, I guess the, the way that the New Yorker does, right? Trying to kind of ask the bigger questions and say, hey, wait just a second, right? Like they're looking at it with a, a bigger perspective, I guess, as you will, right? So they're saying, you know, what what are we looking at here? So, so their question, like they said, you know, one of the first questions certainly has been, is publishing about art or commerce? And of course, they're saying, look, the answer is both as with any creative business, but watching each side wrestle with that ambiguity has been instructed. So this, again, continues to be something that I just find so interesting. And and in this particular New, New Yorker article, they write, in the course of two weeks, an image of publishers as savvy and data-driven has vied with a tenderly drawn auto-portrait of gamblers, guessers, and dreamers. At times, it has felt reasonable to wonder whether the industry should be characterized as an industry at all. The spectacle has been curiously entertaining. Publishing executives have had to initiate federal employees into a dialect of backlists, advanced copies, and book talk influencers. So those are backlists. Those are the books that we talk about that are, say, you know, more than six months or a year old. Advanced copies are when certain people are given an advanced copy to write a review, to try to get, to get buzz on the book. Book talk influencers are people who are on book talk, who are posting videos, getting people excited about certain books. So all of those kind of things are taking center stage in this particular trial. And as we have said, the heart, you know, this, this article points it out, governor, the government, the government has said the heart of their case is around this narrow category of anticipated top sellers where the threat of this monopsony is greatest. So there's this concern that writers are going to be getting less money. There's this concern that we as readers, I mean, because it's like, well, why do we care about this? Well, we care because we want to read a wide variety of books. And I talk about, you know, that everyone loved it but me books, right? These are books that are getting, you know, millions of people are reading them. But there are so many other books that are out there that are not getting read. Well, for all sorts of different reasons. Does it mean they're bad books? Not necessarily, right? It could be that publishers are not putting as much money toward those books. So as we see the publishing industry get narrower and narrower, there are going to be ramifications. That is what the government is saying. 
So I'm going to keep you guys posted. Oh, I do have to add this. Okay, this is really good too. Um, in, in this New Yorker, they say one by one, soberly dressed executives mounted the days to frame publishing as a game of chance, a business of passion. In the words of the departing McMillian CEO, Don Weisberg, everything is random in publishing. So saying success is random. Bestsellers are random. This is why we are the random house. <laughs> and, uh, and someone else, Brian Tart, the president of Viking, testified earlier, August 3rd, saying that acquiring books is as much an art as a science. And to illustrate this point, he described passing that he passed on Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up and the current number one, Where the Crawdads Sing, you guys, we've talked about that one, observed that profit and loss statements are really fake. So this, it's just getting to be continually really interesting. So we're keeping our eyes on this. Just curious to see kind of how this, how this transpires. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> I'm going to to try to to get you some of what I think are the some interesting tidbits on on this. And again, I want to, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Remind you that you can always reach me at www.everyoneloveditbutme.com if you have a book you would like to see me discuss on the podcast. And it always really helps me if you follow my show, if you tell your friends and relatives about my show, the more people who express interest in my show, um, just the, the better. So I really appreciate that. Again, thank you for your time. I hope you have a lovely day. And most importantly, I hope you have time to read today.